0: Hey everybody, welcome to the Derishai Experiment, the show where we look at the symbols that are spoken of in scripture, and then we use them to discover the shadows of our Messiah. Leviticus as a book of the Bible, it contains many things that are simply impossible for us to apply today. We cannot sacrifice an animal because there's no temple, and sacrifice requires that there be a temple and an altar. Sacrifice as described in Leviticus also requires a priesthood to officiate. And the things that a sacrifice accomplished, well, they're no longer necessary. Now, instead of an Ola sacrifice, we give ourselves as an Ola sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Father. Romans twelve one. I call upon you, therefore, brothers, through the compassion of God, to present your bodies as a living offering, holy and well-pleasing to God, your reasonable worship. We no longer need a Shlemim sacrifice because peace has been accomplished between God and man, Romans 5, 1-2, therefore having been declared right by faith, we have peace with God through our Master, Yeshua the Messiah, through whom we also have access by faith into His favor in which we stand, and we exult in the expectation of the honor of God. We no longer need to cleanse the holy things from our sin and uncleanness through sin sacrifice because... God does not physically dwell in our midst. And the spiritual equivalents, well, they've been cleansed once and for all. Hebrews 9, 24-28 For Messiah has not entered into the holy place made by hand, figures of the true, but into the heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters into the holy place year by year with blood not his own, For if so, he would have had to suffer often, since the foundation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the offering of himself. And as it awaits men to die once, and after this the judgment, so also the Messiah, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time apart from sin to those waiting for him unto salvation. And if we're honest with ourselves, I'd be willing to bet that None of us actually want to take an animal and slaughter it ourselves in order to make ourselves right with God. So if we cannot participate in animal sacrifice, and if the things that the sacrifices were meant to accomplish are no longer necessary, why do we need to learn about them? Well, as we discovered, the sacrifices, they teach us about the attitudes that we should have when we approach God. Attitudes that we spent weeks covering. The Ola, revealing the attitude of fear and awe with which we can approach God. The Mincha, revealing an attitude of gift-giving or tribute to an intimate partner or to a king. The Shlamim, revealing the desire for fellowship and intimacy with God. The Chata'at, containing the attitude of humility as it reveals our nature of sin and just how far we are from God's nature. And the Asham, revealing the attitude of repentance or turning away from the sins that we actively engage in. Each of these ideas revealing to us attitudes that we should have when we enter into worship with Hashem. So in the beginning of Leviticus, we see something that can no longer be practiced, but which still has a richness and a depth of meaning that helps us to understand our current relationship with God better. Well, as Leviticus proceeds from sacrifice to the topic of uncleanness, the issue that we had with sacrifice gets even worse. What does ritual uncleanness mean for a modern audience? Now, if we really study this topic out, we discovered that uncleanness only mattered when a person was attending to approach Hashem in his tabernacle or his temple, the place where his glory was physically manifested on this earth. And uncleanness, it only mattered in connection to the physical manifestation of Hashem in his temple. Without a temple or a tabernacle, the topic of uncleanness, it kind of loses its oomph. Especially when we consider that we've been made clean through Messiah. 1 Corinthians 6.11 says, And such were some of you, but you have been washed, you were sanctified, but you were declared right in the name of Yeshua and by the Spirit of our God. So why should we even care about uncleanness? Is it simply a mental exercise or an appreciation for history? Now there's a lot to be had on this topic, but is there more? Is there something deeper, just as there was with sacrifice? Well, today we're going to finish the topic of uncleanness. And today we have three, I apologize, long chapters to discuss. So let's go ahead, open to Leviticus 13, and read Leviticus 13, 14, and 15. Leviticus chapter 13 through 15. And Hashem spoke to Moshe and to Aaron, saying, When a man has on the skin of his body a swelling, a scab, or a bright spot, and it shall become on the skin of his body like a leprous infection. Then he shall be brought to Aaron the priest, or to one of his sons, the priests. And the priest shall look at the infection on the skin of the body, and if the hair on the infection has turned white, and the infection appears to be deeper than the skin of his body, it is a leprous infection, and the priest shall look at him and pronounce him unclean. But if the bright spot is white on the skin of his body and does not appear to be deeper than the skin, and its hair has not turned white, Then the priest shall shut up the infected one seven days. And the priest shall look at him on the seventh day and see, if the infection appears to be as it was, and the infection has not spread on the skin, then the priest shall shut him up another seven days. And the priest shall look at him again on the seventh day and see, if the infection has darkened, and the infection has not spread on the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him clean. It is a scab, and he shall wash his garments and be clean. But if the scab spreads further over the skin after he has been seen by the priest for his cleansing, he shall be seen by the priest again. And the priest shall look and see if the scab has spread on the skin. Then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is leprosy. When the infection of leprosy is on a man, then he shall be brought to the priest. And the priest shall look and see if the swelling on the skin is white, and it has turned the hair white, and there is a spot of raw flesh in the swelling. It is an old leprosy in the skin of his body, and the priest shall pronounce him unclean. He does not shut him up, for he is unclean. And if leprosy breaks out all over the skin, and the leprosy shall cover all the skin of the infected one, from his head to his foot, wherever the priest looks, then the priest shall look and see if the leprosy has covered all his body. He shall pronounce the infected one clean. It has all turned white. He is clean. But the day raw flesh appears on him, he is unclean. Then the priest shall look at the raw flesh and pronounce him to be unclean. The raw flesh is unclean. It is leprosy. Or when the raw flesh changes and turns white again, he shall come to the priest, and the priest shall look at him and see if the infection has turned white. Then the priest shall pronounce the infected one clean. He is clean. And when the body has a boil in the skin, and it is healed, and in the place of the boil there comes a white swelling or a bright spot, reddish white, then it shall be seen by the priest. And the priest shall look and see if it appears deeper than the skin, and its hair has turned white. The priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is a leprous infection which has broken out of the boil. But if the priest looks at it and sees no white hairs in it, and if it is not deeper than the skin but has faded, then the priest shall shut him up seven days. And if it has spread further over the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is a leprous infection. But if the bright spot stays in its place, it has not spread. It is the scar of the boil and the priest shall pronounce him clean. Or when the body receives a burn on its skin by fire, and the raw flesh of the burn shall become a bright spot, reddish-white or white, then the priest shall look at it and see, if the hair of the bright spot has turned white, and it appears to be deeper than the skin, it is leprosy broken out in the burn. And the priest shall pronounce him unclean, it is a leprous infection. But if the priest looks at it and sees there are no white hairs in the bright spot, and it is not deeper than the skin, but has faded, Then the priest shall shut him up seven days. And the priest shall look at him on the seventh day. If it spreads further over the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is a leprous infection. But if the bright spot stays in its place and has not spread on the skin, but has faded, it is a swelling from the burn. And the priest shall pronounce him clean, for it is the scar from the burn. And when a man or a woman has an infection on the head or in the beard, then the priest shall look at the infection and see if it appears deeper than the skin, and there is thin yellow hair in it, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is an eruption, a leprosy of the head or beard. But when the priest looks at the infection of the eruption and sees that it does not appear deeper than the skin, and there is no black hair in it, then the priest shall shut up the one with the infection of the eruption seven days. And on the seventh day, the priest shall look at the infection and see if the eruption has not spread, and there is no yellow hair in it, and the eruption does not appear deeper than the skin, then he shall shave himself, but the eruption he does not shave. And the priest shall shut up the one with the eruption another seven days. And on the seventh day, the priest shall look at the eruption and see if the eruption has not spread over the skin and does not appear deeper than the skin. Then the priest shall pronounce him clean, and he shall wash his garments. He shall be clean." But if the eruption spreads further over the skin after his cleansing, then the priest shall look at him and see if the eruption has spread over the skin. The priest need not seek for a yellow hair. He is unclean. But if the eruption appears to have stayed and there is a black hair grown up in it, the eruption has healed. He is clean, and the priest shall pronounce him clean. And when a man or a woman has bright spots on the skin of his body, white bright spots, then the priest shall look and see if the bright spot on the skin of the body are dull white. If it is a white spot that grows on the skin, he is clean. When a man loses his hair of his head, he is bald, and he is clean. And if the hair has fallen from the forehead, he is bald on the forehead, he is clean. And when there is, on the bald head or bald forehead, a reddish-white infection, it is leprosy breaking out on his bald head or his bald forehead. And the priest shall look at it and see if the swelling of the infection is reddish-white on his bald head or on his bald forehead as the appearance of leprosy on the skin of the body. He is a leprous man. He is unclean. The priest shall pronounce him unclean without fail. His infection is on his head. As for the leper who has the infection, his garments are torn and his head is uncovered, and he has to cover his upper lip and cry, Unclean! Unclean! He is unclean all the days he has the infection. He is unclean. He is unclean and he dwells alone. His dwelling place is outside the camp. And when a garment has an infection of leprosy in it, in a woolen garment, or in a linen garment, or in the warp or weft of linen or wool, or in leather, or in any leather work, and the infection shall be greenish or reddish in the garment, or in the leather of the warp, or in the weft, or in any leather object, it is an infection of leprosy, and shall be shown to the priest. And the priest shall look at the infection, and shut up the infected seven days. And he shall look at the infection on the seventh day, and when the infection has spread in the garment, or in the warp, or in the weft, or in the leather, or in in any leather work, the infection is an active leprosy. It is unclean. And he shall burn the garment, or the warp, or the weft, in the wool, or in the linen, or in any leather object in which the infection is, for it is an active leprosy. It is burned with fire. But if the priest looks and sees that the infection has not spread in the garment, or in the warp, or in the weft, or in any leather object, Then the priest shall give command, and they shall wash that in which the infection is, and he shall shut it up another seven days. And the priest shall look at the infection after it has been washed, and see if the infection has not changed its appearance, though the infection has not spread. It is unclean, and burn it in the fire. It is eaten away in its inside or outside. And if the priest shall look and see that the infection has faded after washing it, then he shall tear it out of the garment, or out of the warp, or out of the weft, or out of the leather. And if it is still seen in the garment, or in the warp, or in the weft, or in any leather object, it is a spreading infection. Burn it with fire, that in which the infection is. And if you wash the garment, or the warp, or the weft, or any leather object, if the infection has disappeared from it, then it shall be washed a second time, and shall be clean. This is the Torah of the infection of leprosy in a garment of wool, or linen, or in the warp, or in the weft, or in any leather object, to pronounce it clean, or to pronounce it unclean. And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, This shall be the Torah of the leper for the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought to the priest. And the priest shall go out in the camp, and the priest shall look and see if the leprosy is healed in the leper. Then the priest shall command, and he shall take for him who is to be cleansed, two live and clean birds, and cedar wood, and scarlet, and hyssop. And the priest shall command, and he shall slay one of the birds in an earthen vessel over running water. Let him take the live bird and the cedar wood and the scarlet and the hyssop and dip them in the live bird in the blood of the bird that was slain over the running water. And he shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed from the leprosy and shall pronounce him clean and shall let the live bird loose in the open field. And he who is to be cleansed shall wash his garments and shall shave off all his hair and wash himself in water and shall be clean. Then after that he comes into the camp but shall stay outside of the tent seven days. And on the seventh day it shall be that he shaves all the hair off his head, and his beard and his eyebrows, even all his hair he shaves off. And he shall wash his garments and wash his body in water, and shall be clean. And on the eighth day he takes two male lambs, perfect ones, and one ewe lamb, a year old, a perfect one, with three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, as a grain offering, and one log of oil. And the priest who is cleansing shall present the man who is to be cleansed with these offerings before Hashem at the door of the tent of appointment. And the priest shall take one male lamb and bring it as a guilt offering, and the log of oil, and wave them as a wave offering before Hashem. And he shall slay the lamb in the place where he slays the sin offering, and the ascending offering, in a holy place. For the guilt offering, like the sin offering, belongs to the priest. It is most holy. And the priest shall take some of the blood of the guilt offering, and the priest shall put it on the tip of the right ear of him who is to be cleansed, and on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. And the priest shall take some of the log of oil and pour it into the palm of his own left hand. And the priest shall dip his right finger in the oil that is in the left hand, and shall sprinkle some of the oil with his finger seven times before Hashem. And of the rest of the oil in his hand, the priest puts some on the tip of the right ear of him who is to be cleansed, and on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot, on the blood of the guilt offering. And the rest of the oil that is in the priest's hand he puts on the head of him who is to be cleansed, and the priest shall make atonement for him before Hashem, and the priest shall make the sin offering, and make atonement for him who is to be cleansed from his uncleanness, Then afterwards he slays the ascending offering. And the priest shall offer the ascending offering and the grain offering on the altar, and the priest shall make atonement for him, and he shall be clean. But if he is poor and is unable to afford it, then he shall take one male lamb as a guilt offering to be waived, to make atonement for him, and one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering, and a log of oil, and two turtle doves or two young pigeons, such as he is able to afford, and one shall be a sin offering and the other an ascending offering. And he shall bring them to the priest on the eighth day of his cleansing, to the door of the tent of appointment before Hashem. And the priest shall take the lamb of the guilt offering and the log of oil, and the priest shall wave them as a wave offering before Hashem. And he shall slay the lamb of the guilt offering, and the priest shall take some of the blood of the guilt offering and put it on the tip of the right ear of him who is to be cleansed, and on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. Then the priest pours some of the oil into the palm of his own left hand, and the priest shall sprinkle with his right finger some of the oil that is in his left hand seven times before Hashem. And the priest shall put some of the oil that is in his hand on the tip of the right ear of him who is to be cleansed, and on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot, on the place of the blood of the guilt offering, and the rest of the oil that is in the priest's hand he puts on the head of him who is to be cleansed, to make atonement for him before Hashem. And he shall prepare one of the turtle doves or young pigeons, such as he is able to afford, That which he is able to afford, the one is a sin offering, and the other is an ascending offering, with the grain offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him who is to be cleansed before Hashem. This is the Torah for one who had an infection of leprosy, who was unable to afford his cleansing. And Hashem spoke to Moshe and to Aaron, saying, When you come into the land of Canaan, which I am giving you as a possession, and I put a plague of leprosy in a house in the land of your possession, then shall the one who owns the house come and inform the priest, saying, It seems to me that there is some plague in the house. And the priest shall command and shall empty the house before the priest goes in to look at the plague, so that all that is in the house is not made unclean. And after that the priest goes in to look at the house, and he shall look at the plague and see if the plague is on the walls of the house with sunken places, greenish or reddish, which appear to be deep in the wall. Then the priest shall go out of the house, to the door of the house, and shut up the house seven days. And the priest shall come again on the seventh day and look and see if the plague has spread on the walls of the house. Then the priest shall command, and they shall remove the stones with the plague in them, and they shall throw them outside the city into an unclean place. While he lets the house be scraped inside all around, and the dust that they scrape off, he shall pour out in an unclean place outside of the city. And they shall take other stones, and put them in the place of those stones, and take other mortar, and plaster the house. And if the plague comes back and breaks into the house after he has removed the stones, after he has scraped the house, and after it is plastered, Then the priest shall come and look and see if the plague has spread in the house. It is an active leprosy in the house. It is unclean. And he shall break down the house, its stones and its timber and all the plaster of the house. And he shall bring them outside the city to an unclean place. And he who goes into the house all the days while it is shut up becomes unclean until evening. And he who lies down in the house has to wash his garments. And he who eats in the house has to wash his garments. However, if the priest indeed comes in and looks at it and sees that the plague has not spread in the house after the house was plastered, then the priest shall pronounce the house clean, because the plague is healed. And to cleanse the house he shall take two birds and cedar wood and scarlet and hyssop, and he shall slay one of the birds in an earthen vessel over running water. And he shall take the cedar wood and the hyssop and the scarlet and the live bird, and dip them in the blood of the slain bird and in the running water. And he shall sprinkle the house seven times. He shall thus cleanse the house with the blood of the bird, and the running water, and the live bird, and with the cedar wood, and with the hyssop and the scarlet. And he shall let the live bird loose outside the city in the open field. And he shall make an atonement for the house, and it shall be clean. This is the Torah for any infection of leprosy and eruption, and for leprosy of a garment and of a house, and for a swelling and for a scab and for a bright spot, to teach what is unclean and what is clean. This is the Torah of leprosy. And Hashem spoke to Moshe and to Aaron, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When any man has a discharge from his flesh, his discharge is unclean. And this is the uncleanness in regard to the discharge, whether his flesh runs with this discharge, or his flesh is stopped up by his discharge and its uncleanness. Any bed becomes unclean on which he who has the discharge lies, and any object on which he sits becomes unclean. And anyone who touches his bed has to wash his garments, and shall bathe in water, and be unclean until evening." And he who sits on any object on which he who has the discharge sat has to wash his garments, and shall bathe in water, and be unclean until evening. And he who touches the flesh of him who has the discharge, has to wash his garments, and shall bathe in water, and shall be unclean until evening. And when he who has the discharge spits on him who is clean, then he shall wash his garments, and shall bathe in water, and be unclean until evening. Any saddle on which he who has the discharge rides becomes unclean. And whoever touches any of that which is under him is unclean until evening. And he who is carrying them up has to wash his garments and shall bathe in water and be unclean until evening. And anyone whom he who has the discharge touches without rinsing his hands in water shall wash his garments and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. And the earthen vessel which he who has the discharge touches has to be broken and every wooden vessel has to be rinsed in water. And when he who has a discharge is cleansed from his discharge, then he shall count for himself seven days for his cleansing, and shall wash his garments, and shall bathe his flesh in running water, and be clean. And on the eighth day he takes for himself two turtle doves, or two young pigeons, and shall come before Hashem to the door of the tent of appointment, and shall give them to the priest. And the priest shall prepare them, the one as a sin offering, and the other as an ascending offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before Hashem, because of the discharge. And when a man has an emission of semen, then he shall wash his flesh in water and be unclean until evening. And any garment and any leather on which there is semen shall also be washed with water and be unclean until evening. And when a woman lies with a man and there is an emission of semen, they shall both bathe in water and be unclean until evening. And when a woman has a discharge and the discharge from her flesh is blood, she has to be in her separation for seven days, and whoever touches her is unclean until evening. And whatever she lies on during her separation is unclean, and whatever she sits on is unclean. Anyone who touches her bed has to wash his garments and shall bathe in water and be unclean until evening. And whoever touches any objects that she sat on has to wash his garments and shall bathe in water and be unclean until evening. And if she is on the bed or in any object in which she sits when he touches it, he is unclean until evening. And if a man lies with her at all, and her monthly flow is on him, he shall be unclean seven days and any bed he lies on is unclean. And when a woman has a discharge of blood for many days other than at the time of her monthly separation or when she discharges beyond her usual time of monthly separation, all the days of her unclean discharge shall be as the days of her monthly separation. She is unclean. Any bed on which she lies all the days of her discharge is to her as the bed of her monthly separation, and whatever she sits on is unclean, as the uncleanness of her monthly separation." And anyone who touches them is unclean, and shall wash his garments, and shall bathe in water, and be unclean until evening. And if she is cleansed of her discharge, then she shall count for herself seven days, and after that she is clean. And on the eighth day she takes for herself two turtle doves, or two young pigeons, and shall bring them to the priest, to the door of the tent of appointment. And the priest shall prepare the one as a sin offering, and the other as an ascending offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her before Hashem for the discharge of her uncleanness. Thus you shall separate the children of Israel from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness when they defile my dwelling place which is in their midst. This is the Torah for one who has discharge, and for him who emits semen and is unclean thereby, and for her who is sick in her monthly separation, and for one who has a discharge, whether man or woman, and for him who lies with an unclean woman. When we get to chapter 13 in Leviticus, the problem that I described earlier is compounded in some ways. Usually our English translations, the word tzarot is simply translated as leprosy. Unfortunately, this is a misnomer. The English word leprosy was chosen to translate the Hebrew word based on a Greek word that was used in the Septuagint, lepra. It's a word that can describe any disease which causes a scaly or flaky skin. I mean, eczema could be considered lepra. But the Hebrew word zarot is not limited to simply scaly skin disease, but rather is a multi-purpose word, as it can describe infections that occur not only in humans, but in clothing or in structures. Alongside this, while what we understand as leprosy, called Hansen's disease, may be described in this chapter, the descriptions that were given here can describe many possible skin infections and disease, and fabric diseases, and structure diseases words that we don't associate together in English. All of us to say that we really don't know anymore what's being described in these chapters. Now, it's been posited by some that Tsarot, as it's described here, has been completely wiped out, that it no longer exists in our world anymore. How this has been accomplished in this view is just as open to interpretation, as is the claim that it doesn't exist at all. Some say that medicine cured it. Others say that hygiene has cured it. Still others say that this disease was cured once and for all with the death of Yeshua who cleanses his people. We read in Leviticus 14 verse 34 that Hashem says that he puts Zaharot in a house. Now this has been extrapolated to include all forms of Zaharot. And then verses such as the one that I read earlier from 1 Corinthians 6 are then used to show that Yeshua has cleansed the world from this affliction. The fact is, is we have no proof of this. Now, if we take tsarot to describe just one thing, then, yes, tsarot does not exist anymore. There is no single disease that's been codified by science that includes all of the symptoms that are listed here. If, however, tsarot is a catchword that describes a host of skin diseases, then perhaps it does still exist, but we call it now by a multitude of other names. The simple fact is that we just don't know. Now, that's not to say that there is nothing of value in this chapter. There are a few things that stand out as you read through chapter 13. So let's go through three of these things from chapter 13. Now, number one, in verse 12 through 14, they describe a person who has had their body completely covered with this skin disease. Oddly enough, if this happens, the person is considered clean. No longer is the person unclean and forced to live alone. Now they're clean and they can re-enter the community. They can worship in the tabernacle. They can be part of the community once again. As I considered this, something struck me. The two ends of the scale of Zarot are clean, but anywhere in the middle is unclean. Where else do we see something of this nature described in Scripture? In Revelation chapters 2 through 3, Yeshua addresses seven churches. And in his address to the final church, the church of Laodicea, We read this in Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 through 16. I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, because you were somewhere in the middle, and neither cold nor hot, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Yeshua desires that his people be either hot or cold, but not in between. Those who are in between, those who are waffling between opinions, they're to be vomited out. They're to be purged from the community. Now, I don't know if the correlation here is more than just that, but there is a correlation here, but I think that meditating on it can provide some insight into how we, as people of God, are to live our lives. Now, the second thing that I want to highlight in this chapter is that the skin whitening condition known as vitiligo is not covered under the topic of Zarot, as some have attempted to claim. This is a condition that Michael Jackson had that it caused his melanin to disappear in his skin and his skin turned white. This is actually a fairly common condition. I know of two people personally who have vitiligo. And verse 38 through 39 seems to describe this very condition. It's just a white spot, people. Nothing else. Nothing to get worried over. It's not, doesn't make a person unclean. Thirdly, I want to address what happened to a person who was diagnosed with having tsarot. They were removed from the community. They were forced to live alone outside of the camp. This is just as good as death for a person. No family to support you. No social life to speak of. No way to worship God. Completely disconnected from everyone and everyone afraid of you. And as you passed by people, you had to cover your mouth and yell unclean just to keep others back. Now, this state of affairs has long been recognized as a form of living death. The person who lives like this is dead to everyone. His body just hasn't caught up yet. Zarot is described as a spiritual death or a living death. In Jewish literature, it's thought that Zarot was a curse from God for sin. And the sin most described at Zarot was the sin of lashon Hara, or evil speech gossip, slander, or any derogatory remark that's directed towards another. Now, this is especially true when a person who is being spoken of is not present. In the Jewish perspective, the Shan Harah was the worst of offenses because it had three victims, the one who's being spoken about, the one who's being spoken to, and the one who's doing the speaking. In their view, all three suffer damage when a person engages in evil speech. And the way that this became associated with Zarot is through the story of Miriam's slander of Moses in Numbers chapter 12. This event became in Jewish literature the primary cause of Tzarot. And so not only were those who had Zarot considered unclean, they were seen as cursed and sinners by everyone else. Now this connection is a bit tenuous as there is another instance in scripture of a person getting Tzarot as a curse from God that's similar to the events of Numbers 12. But in this other case, there's no evil speech that occurs in the chapter. In Second Chronicles chapter 26, we read the story of Uzziah, who broke out in Zarot when he decided to burn incense in the temple. In this case, it was his pride that led to him getting Zarot, not Lashon Hara. Regardless, the fact is that a person diagnosed with Zarot was forced into this condition of living death. They were disconnected from everyone who they knew, and they depended on, and they became a non-person as far as everyone was concerned. In the ancient Near East, this was perhaps a fate worse than death. Now in chapter 14, we read of a hope that's given to the one with zarot. Healing can happen. Restoration is possible. A second chance at life can be attained. Sarot is not a death sentence like Hansen's disease is. And for a person in this state, the fact that healing and restoration could occur would be the only hope that they had. Now as we examine the purification rite for the leper, we see something fascinating if we look at this chapter with an eye for the symbol used in the purification rites. Beginning in chapter 4, we read of several items that were to be used in the purification ritual. These same items being used in the purification of a house as well as a person. Two live birds, cedar wood, scarlet, hyssop, running water or living water, and an earthen vessel. And if we're paying attention, we'll notice that all of these items, save the birds, are used in another place of scripture for purification and rites. The only other place outside of Leviticus which describes purification from a form of uncleanness. And that's Numbers chapter 19, in the ceremony of the red heifer. Another form of uncleanness that's being purified through a seven-day process of purification. Now this fact alone reveals a very real connection to Zarot, to death. Now each of these items, if we view them symbolically, we also find that they're present in another place in scripture. The crucifixion. I'm not going to make my case today for why symbolism is such a big deal when we approach scripture. I've made this case in the past, and I can make the case one-on-one to anyone who has a problem with viewing scripture in this way. So each of these symbolic items was present at the crucifixion, and how they're represented there is, as I said, symbolically. So what at the crucifixion is represented by the two birds? One bird that's killed and the other that's set free? The two thieves that were crucified on either side of Yeshua. One sought forgiveness and was set free. The other chose to remain defiant and died in his sins. The cedar wood that was present? That's easy. The cross. He he was crucified on a stake, on, on a cross. What about the scarlet? Now the scarlet is something very interesting, as there are times throughout the Bible that scarlet thread or rope is directly connected to the Messiah. Whether it's the birth of Tamar's sons, the first having a scarlet thread put on his wrist, the scarlet rope of Rahab that she lowered the spies down on, both of these women being ancestors of the Messiah. And the book of Isaiah compares our sins to scarlet, which will be washed white as wool in chapter 1. In the crucifixion, the scarlet is represented in the royal cloth that Yeshua was dressed in by the Roman guard. Matthew twenty-seven twenty-eight specifically calls the collar of the robe scarlet even though Mark records the color as purple. Why this discrepancy? Well, Mark's account of the crucifixion is an enthronement narrative, and so the royal color is being highlighted. But Matthew was written to a Jewish audience, and his account is more of a sacrifice narrative, and so he highlights that the scarlet was present. What about hyssop? Well, hyssop is what was used to offer a drink to Yeshua while he was dying. Running water? Well, running water is found in the water that flowed from his side when they pierced him. And the earthen vessel? Well, the earthen vessel is the body of Yeshua that was broken for us as part of our cleansing. Each of these symbols was present at the death of Yeshua, and each of these items was present at the cleansing from the worst forms of uncleanness. The person who was the equivalent of the walking dead, and the person who had come into contact with an actual dead person. And it's through this that we see that Yeshua did, in fact, cleanse us from the uncleanness that is a large part of our human experience. He had all of the elements of cleansing from death of all sorts present as he offered his body as the guilt sacrifice that was necessary to cleanse the metzora, the one who was diseased. Now, as part of this ritual, there's more going on because everything that was present has not been accounted for. After the cleansing ritual, there was a waiting period. Seven days, back in the camp, but still not fully part of the community, as the newly cleansed person still had to stay outside of their tent for seven more days. Then on the eighth day, remember what we talked about a few weeks ago, on the eighth day, something significant occurred. A guilt offering was brought. The guilt offering always taking the form of a male lamb. Then there are two other animals to serve as a sin offering and a burnt offering. For a person of family and means, this was a male and a female lamb. But for a poor person, this was simply a dove or a pigeon, as they were able to afford. Then there was a mincha, as well as the grain offering that was brought, and a log of oil. So what other ritual do we read of in the Bible that includes seven-day wait outside of a tent, a series of sacrifices that were to be made, and the blood of one of the sacrifices was put on the right ear, right thumb, and right big toe of the person before they were anointed with oil? Right, we already talked about it, the ordination of the priesthood. Now when we're going through the ordination of the priesthood, we recognize that the ceremony was an elevation of the priest to a level of holiness that they'd not had before. And we see the exact same thing happening here. The former Metzorah is going through a seven-day ritual that's elevating them in status. Not from common to holy, as with the ordination ceremony for the priests, but from unclean to clean. Now, if we take these two things that are occurring, the cleansing of uncleanness accomplished with the items mentioned, and the anointing and elevation of a person from one state to another, we see something very interesting, in my opinion. We took the cleansing ritual and we've connected it to the sacrifice already. Is there a New Testament equivalent, however, of this eighth-day ceremony from both this chapter and the multiple chapters on the ordination ceremony of both Exodus 29 and Leviticus 8? Is there a day that occurred a series of sevens after the cleansing ritual of the crucifixion, which included an anointing? Not an anointing of ears, thumbs, and toes, but rather an anointing of tongues. The day of Shavuot, or Pentecost, that's recorded in Acts chapter 2. The day that those who were anointed to be priests of the new body of Messiah were anointed to spread the word of the gospel to the world. I think Peter picked up on this, and that's why Peter, who writes of all believers being built up into a priesthood for Messiah in 1 Peter 2 5. He says, You also, as living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house, a set apart priesthood to offer up the spiritual sacrifice offerings acceptable to God through Yeshua the Messiah. Living stones. Maybe we should take a moment and consider what these chapters had to say about stones with zarot in a house that's being built. Anyway, just after revealing what is to be done with the cleansing of a person that's been infected with Zaharot, the text then moves on how to identify and cleanse a house that's been infected. Once again, we catch a glimpse of something cool. In the gospel, we read two different accounts of Yeshua cleansing the temple. In most of the gospels, This story occurs after Yeshua enters the city from what is called the Triumphal Entry, several days between the Triumphal Entry and his crucifixion. But in the Gospel of John, the cleansing of the temple occurs very early on in the book. In fact, it occurs as early as chapter 2. Now, this may be describing two separate events, but that only makes sense if the books were all written chronologically. Otherwise, this is the same event, and the book of John isn't written chronologically. Rather, it's written thematically. Regardless, what we read there is called the cleansing of the temple colloquially, even though that language is never used in the text to describe this event. The temple was to be a place of worship, the place where God and man met. Instead, it had become a place of money changers and salesmen. And the presence of these men, they introduced uncleanness into the temple. Perhaps not a physical uncleanness, but more of a spiritual uncleanness. Greed and a religiosity ruling the day. And when Zarot is found in a house, what's to happen to the house? Well, it's to be cleansed. And if the cleansing of the house doesn't work, then what? The house is to be destroyed. Now, I'll admit that this is a tenuous connection, especially if this was just one event rather than two. But the base of the pattern is still present. The house of the God was made unclean. It was infected with death. And so the high priest of the order, Melchizedek, he came in, he inspected the house. He even prevented the people from entering into the holy place, it says in Mark 11, verse 16. And it's only during or after this event, in every gospel, that a prophecy is made about the destruction of the temple. In Matthew, the cleansing happens in chapter 21, and the first prophecy of the destruction of the temple occurs in chapter 24. In Mark the cleansing of the temple occurs in Chapter 11 and the first prophecy of the destruction of the temple occurs in Chapter 13. In Luke the cleansing occurs in Chapter 19 and the first prophecy of the temple's destruction well it's in the same chapter just before directly connected to the cleansing. And in John we find the same thing. The cleansing occurs in Chapter 2 and the first prophecy of the destruction of the temple is also in Chapter 2 directly connected to this event, So while it might be a stretch to connect the cleansing of the temple with Leviticus 14, we can surmise that the destruction of the temple was directly connected to what we call the cleansing of the temple. And finally, in chapter 15 of Leviticus, we read of the last chapter on uncleanness in the book. Now, since I hope we're all adults here, and the topic of chapter 15 is an adult topic, I ask that everybody treat this as adults as I go through this. The uncleanness that's covered in this chapter is the uncleanness associated with bodily discharges. Now, there's a lot of disagreement in the interpretation of this chapter, especially the latter part dealing with the natural cycle of a woman and the unnatural discharge from a woman. I believe that this misunderstanding can be cleared up by viewing this chapter as a chiasm. And usually I don't get into chiasms a whole lot in the, in this platform, but there is a chiasm of this chapter, and I feel it helps us to understand this chapter. So the chapter opens with male discharges, and it closes with the female, the two types composing the two branches of the chiasm. And there are three types that are discussed in each branch. The unnatural discharges in both, they open and they close the chapter. Then there's the natural discharges that occur outside of intimacy, And then in the very center of the chapter is the discharges that occur during intimacy. Each of these types of discharge introduces a different type of uncleanness. So how does this assist us in better understanding this chapter? Well, it's been taught by some that the sacrifice that's included in verse 29 was one that had to be made for a woman's monthly cycle. I don't believe that to be a case. Others teach that there was up to a 14-day waiting period from the beginning of a woman's cycle until intimacy could resume. They take the seven days of the cycle and they add the seven days of cleansing, and only on the eighth day of the cleansing, after the seven days of uncleanness and seven days of cleansing, so 15 days after the beginning, can intimacy resume. But if we see this chiastically, we can understand that that's not likely to be the case. There's no extra seven-day waiting period after the normal cycle. All that's required is a wash and a wait before the couple can come back together again. And one thing that I would like to address regarding this topic, it is extremely popular in the world today to view sex as a holy act. In many religions, whether it's pagan temples in the ancient Near East, fertility gods and godisms, the tantra aspects of Buddhism and Hinduism, or the legitimized shaming of enemy women in Islam through rape. So many other religions make sex an act of worship in one way or another. This is not the case with the Bible or the God of the Bible. The act of sex is an unclean act. It's not an unholy act unless practiced improperly, as we're going to see in chapters 18 and 20 of Leviticus. But neither is it holy. Sex is not worship. Its purpose is vulnerability and intimacy with a life partner and the propagation of the species. Sex builds bonds between spouses, but it does nothing with our relationship with God. We as believers in the God of the Bible, we need to understand sex for what it is, and we must not include it as part of our worship, nor practice it in our places of worship. And I think that that's all I'm going to say on this topic. So the larger topic at discussion here is uncleanness. We've touched on uncleanness for a little over a month now, and it's been the main topic for two weeks now. So what can we learn about uncleanness that is applicable? I mean, we don't need to cleanse ourselves. We have no temple or tabernacle for our uncleanness to encroach on. And besides, as I hope I've demonstrated, we have been cleansed from uncleanness in every way that matters to us today. So what can we learn from these chapters, if anything? Well, as I thought through these chapters, I can only come up with the thing that I brought up last week. Uncleanness is connected to death. Every type of uncleanness in these last five chapters comes from an association with death. Whether it's the death of the seed that creates human life that occurs in our discharges, The living death of Zarot, the curse that came as part of death that's associated with birth in Genesis 3, or the very real danger of death that arrives with the birth of a child, the touching of a dead animal or a dead human. In every case of uncleanness that's described in Torah, death is the underlying associative factor. And uncleanness comes from sin. Can't forget that. Uncleanness is a result of sin. That's why Paul connects sin and death so much in his writings. And death? Death is anathema to God. Why? Well, because Hashem is a God of life. The world before the fall was characterized by life. The world of new creation in the same way is characterized by life. And we see here that God cannot allow even a close association with death Into his presence. Uncleanness itself is not sin in the traditional way that we think of sin as an action that's committed. But uncleanness is sin in that it is the result of our mortal bodies falling short of the glory of God. Death and uncleanness, they're intimately related, and it is sin and death that separates us from God. But through the blood of His Son and the ultimate sacrifice that was made on our behalf, we've been given a nature of life. Sin and death have been defeated in our lives, and we no longer need to fear the death of the flesh that will come one day. Because we know that with our new nature of life, the death of this flesh is not the end. We will be raised from the dead, and we know this because He, was raised from the dead. We've been granted life everlasting. We've been joined to the God of life through a covenant. We are eternal even now. Even in the midst of this world of death, we can be a light that reveals the life that can only be found in Yeshua. And at this time in history, that is a message that we have to preach. Allegiance to Yeshua is only the first step on the path of life. But it is a step on the path of life that we must take as we Deresh So seek life. Seek life through Yeshua. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to seeklifesc.com. That's seeklifesc.com. We'll see you again next time as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.